0: Hello and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with Glossy's editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. How's it going, Jill?
1: So good. Happy to have you back. We missed you.
0: I'm happy to be back. Thank you for filling in for me last week with Zofia. Um, I was coming back from Shop Talk. Actually, I landed at like 1 a.m. the night before we record, and we record in the morning. So I was around; I just was asleep, <laughs> probably when you guys were recording it. So thank you for for taking over for me. Um, but actually, this week we're going to talk about some of the things I saw at Shop Talk, some of the things I saw and heard. Uh, a lot of big brands were in attendance. A lot of interesting discussions to be had. So I'll report back a little bit of that. Um, I also wrote a bunch of stories on Glossy about things I heard at Shop Talk. So also. If you want to go to Glossy and just click on my author name, you'll see a bunch of Shop Talk stories too. So, if any of the things I talk about are interesting and you want to read more, I probably wrote about it at some point uh, last week. We're also going to talk about ThreadUp. They have a new resale calculator, or I should say, a fashion footprint calculator. They're a resale company. It calculates your, you know, your carbon. You know footprint or whatever. We'll talk about that. And then finally, we're going to talk about Dolce & Gabbana opening hotels and condos and the crossover between luxury fashion brands and things like museums and hotels and cafes and all that stuff. But yeah, let's start with Shop Talk. So like I said, I got back last week. It was wild. That is like such an insanely huge retail conference. Um, so many big brands were in attendance. Um, there were sessions all day. They, Nelly performed, which was crazy. Um, he played country grammar, which was, it's a very strange experience, it's but iconic. it was cool to see him. <laughs> it was cool. It just was funny that it was like kind of a, a dry, like retail business conference. And then there was like Nelly performed one night. Um, anyway, but it was interesting. So a lot of, uh, great conversations I had there. Um, I've got some specific topics that, that I talked to people about, but I wanted to start with just sort of the overall mood was kind of interesting because um, we've talked about this on the podcast. We're, we're definitely in going into a little bit of a, a rougher time economically, uh, and especially for startups and businesses. Um, almost everyone I talked to there was talking about how uh, they're looking for, if they're not profitable yet they're trying to get profitable as soon as possible if they are profitable they're trying to maintain those profits nobody wants to do layoffs and cost cuts and the the investors are really like it's a little bit the party's over vibe um you know talking to some people uh imran khan from Verishop, who i talked to twice actually during the week was like yeah i think it's actually going to get even worse than this you know over the next year or two so that was, like, on a lot of people's minds. It was it was positive. There was, you know, lots of good optimistic discussion, but I think that was kind of weighing on everybody that it's, like, no more, uh, you know, spending wildly on big, crazy ideas and hoping they work. It's like, no, we got to actually have a plan here because things are a little rough. Consumer spending is down and investors are stingier with their money. All that kind of stuff was, you know, very much what was on everybody's mind.
1: No doubt. I I have to know, like, I would think that even those brands that are doing well, or maybe they're hitting, um, striking a chord with shoppers now, Um, maybe, is it, would you say like during the pandemic, when we talked to brands, and maybe they were in athleisure, and they had maybe vertical integration, or somehow they were able to work around the the barriers and the hurdles. Mm -hmm. um, They were almost embarrassed to say that, like, because everybody was so um, down and struggling, and they didn't really like to mm-hmm. like sound like they were bragging or like gloating. I don't know. Um was yeah. it was it that extreme, would you say, or people?
0: no, okay. yeah, no, not not that extreme. And like I said, there was a lot of optimism. There was a lot of talk about like AI, for example. there was you know, that was a huge topic. almost everybody, uh, all the sessions that I went to and the the people that I interviewed, Brought it up, or I brought it up, and they talked about it. But everyone's testing it, and you know everyone's excited about it. Um, I will definitely say the the mood is different around that than about say Web three or some some other big tech thing from a couple of years ago, because there was much more like okay, how do we, how is this actually going to help us? Uh, Simeon Siegel from BMO uh, had a great thing where he was talking about you know it's interesting it's cool it's exciting but right now it's the best use cases like my kids are using it to cheat on their homework <laughs> and it's like that you know good for them but um how how can we actually use it and and it wasn't like it wasn't like skepticism like this isn't going to work it's not going to do anything it was more like let's figure out how it can help us first and then we'll we can get excited about it you know and and it was Interesting comparing that to a lot of Web3 stuff where I feel like brands were immediately like, oh, this is game changing. I'm going to invest $100 million in this without even thinking about it. And now it's like AI, in my opinion, I think has much more obvious use cases. And it's still a little bit like, okay, let's go slow. Let's make sure this is actually something worth you know using. And we'll see how this can actually be integrated and then we'll we'll think about, you know, scaling up and investing and all that stuff. So just, it, it wasn't not quite as extreme pessimism or, or you know, down, downbeat mood as pandemic era, but definitely just a little more cautious, I would say. And uh, just from talking to a lot of these brands, but there's a lot of AI testing going on. Um, like I mentioned, Imran from Verishop, he was saying they're testing ways to pull, uh, you know, product recommendations that they would normally give to people in just kind of a plain like carousel, you know, we're just images. And like, how can we use AI to maybe work that into like a little message that's like, you know, ha- using natural language that's like you, you liked this, maybe you might like this too. And I was like, that seems like a good idea. That seems like a, you know, a a real way to use the technology. So it's definitely, you know, a lot of people are thinking about that.
1: No doubt. It's interesting with the emerging, emerging ideas and technologies. It's like you were saying, proceeding with caution. I'm sure everyone is almost traumatized from how they (laughs) celebrated crypto and NFTs and metaverse. Uh, Well, metaverse is is still happening and it's th- it's yeah. coming. But anyway, I'm sure there's there's some pullback because of that as well. We also heard this mm-hmm. during the Digiday uh, Publishing Summit that just happened in Vail. Um, I'm hearing from our co- co-workers that, yes, the, the talk was about pulling back where they can cut, not necessarily headcount, but where what that looks like. Um, and I'm sure we'll see that uh, just not meaning to promote our events but like may we've got our e-commerce um forum it's like you can't not reference the state of the economy um so i'm sure that will be hot i i saw a lot of tweets out there i was not at shop talk i've actually never been to shop talk i i don't know but
0: um, oh you should go jill i think you would like it
1: i think so too how does it compare to nrf in terms of size scale it's much larger or how would you say
0: I think that it was more, I think they're about the same size. They're both pretty huge. Um, I think that NRF maybe has a bigger show floor, or at least I didn't spend as much time on the, you know, like the show floor where they've got booths and all that stuff. I, I didn't spend that much time there at Shop Talk, but my experience with NRF at the Javits Center is that I think that part of it is a little bigger, but they're pretty comparable, I would say.
1: Cool. I, I saw a lot of tweets saying, uh, talking about AI as the big idea of or the the drinking game of the week. <laughs> a lot of just talking, speaking of AI, talking about that and how brands can leverage it, and also retail media networks, which. I, I felt like I was like justified because I've been pushing mm-hmm. the team to to talk about these things more. Um, because there's there's a lot of potential there. Um, but it that also rang true at South by Southwest when I was recently there. Um, it was, mm-hmm. but there was kind of, would you say there was the an equal balance between to me, I saw the kind of a split where it was like old school, build community, grassroots um type of strategies versus these. Ultra personalization, high tech, advanced analytics—it um, was just kind of two extremes, as I saw it.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, there might have been some of that. I don't want to say that there there wasn't a split, but I feel like some of the people I talked to were doing a little like we're doing a little mix of both. You know, like oh, they definitely a about mix. How, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. They they talked about um, you know looking to legacy, you know, media and and heritage brands as, you know, an example, and maybe pulling away from exciting, you know, crazy tech and just going back to kind of basic stuff. Um, there was a lot of talk about the, the brick and mortar store, um, as a, you know, a tool. And, and it, that was an interesting conversation I had with a lot of people because, uh, the store is attractive right now because online customer acquisition costs are like so high and and so much other stuff is so expensive. But the thing is, brick and mortar stores are also expensive and they haven't really gotten less expensive. It's just that other stuff has gotten more expensive. So it's uh, it's a little bit like, on the one hand, it's less risky than maybe some other, you know, relying on platforms like Facebook or whatever that change all the time and you know, stuff like that. The the thing I was hearing about stores was we should open more stores, but let's be like very careful about where we put them. Maybe smaller stores, maybe shorter leases, maybe less inventory in the stores um, as a way to sort of like get the benefit of the store, which is, you know, having a presence in uh, you know, foot traffic area, area like, uh, you know, whether it's a mall or just like a shopping neighborhood like Soho or something, but to uh, to hedge as much of the costs of retail as possible, like, you know, having a smaller store means your rent is lower. Having less inventory means that there's less inventory sitting on the shelves and, you know, soaking up money. So um, it's a little bit like, how can we get the best of, of both worlds?
1: Yeah. You know? As you're talking, I'm like, I never thought of this, but like, in the physical retail format, a lot of these brands are also relying on platforms, like they're moving into Leap's space for kind of the turnkey, mm-hmm. and there are various retail as a service kind of platforms, which is, I don't think that there's concern there, but I mean, there are some similarities, which I actually never yeah. thought of.
0: Yeah, there are. And, and I talked to Amish from Leap um, while I was there, and, and he was telling me about a new thing they have. like seasonal stores, um, which is kind of similar to a pop-up, but it sounds like a little more regular and uh, slightly longer term where it's, they'll have one store and it's basically for two seasons of the year, it's one brand. And then the the other two seasons, it's a different brand and they kind of just trade off. So um, I'm forgetting the name of the brand, but he gave me an example of a storefront they have where during the warmer months, it's a like footwear and sandals brand is in there yeah. and then in the colder months they swap out with an outerwear brand and they just they kind of share this space um and then it's like they they both have a, a larger store but only for six months of the year and those the off the six off months is when they're like don't sell that much anyway so it's kind of like finding little ways to um yeah like minimize some of the costs of retail while still gaining the benefits is is what I would say.
1: Yeah, and I bet that's driven by demand. I know that like the arrivals for a long time did a a winter, they're known for their outerwear, just did a winter pop-up. They did it annually. Um I know Somersault swimwear brand, heavily swimwear, has done Mm -hmm. it going into spring, um, which makes a lot of sense. That makes great sense.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's everything I, I wanted to bring about Shop Talk, but uh, it was a pretty fun event, Jill. I think that you would have a good time. And so many good brands all in the same space for the same couple of days. So uh, for a journalist, it was great. Got to meet a lot of cool people. And Nelly. <laughs> and Nelly. Uh, I didn't get to meet Nelly, unfortunately, but I did see him from very far away. And then, so let's talk about ThredUp. Uh So as part of their annual resale report, which goes out every year, uh, which I think they've done for... A while now, maybe 10 years or something, but this year they released a tool alongside it that lets people calculate their fashion footprint. It's like a quiz. You go through it, asks you things like how many how many items of clothing do you buy a year, what kind of shipping do you use, do you return stuff, how much of it is secondhand, all those things, and then at the end it tells you uh, your your estimated carbon footprint from your fashion. Consumption and um, gives you you know compares it to the average and then gives you some tips on what to do and how to improve that. Obviously, one of their big suggestions is buy from ThreadUp, but uh, but other stuff too.
1: We're on the same page. I did this too. I, yeah. I took the quiz and I I wrote the same thing. Of course, recommended shop yeah. ThreadUp. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly, and I do think like buying secondhand is good, but it is like well, of course they would say that. Um, okay, here's my thought on this tool and tools like this. I think that there's a lot that people can do to reduce their consumption. And I think, you know, I try to be very thoughtful about this and I encourage other people to not just mindlessly, you know, buy fast fashion and throw stuff away. Definitely there's a lot you can do. On the other hand, I do think tools like this kind of make it sound like if only everyone just individually, you know, recycled or whatever, then all of our problems would be fixed. And I really don't think that's um, the best way of framing it. I think that kind of shifts the the responsibility a little bit away from who it really should be on. So I took the quiz and my carbon footprint for fashion for the year was like 300 pounds or something of carbon dioxide. And uh, meanwhile, I just wrote a story last week about how Caring is responsible for 2.4 million cubic tons of carbon dioxide, which is like 5 million pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, which is up. It's like they're supposed to be reducing their emissions and it's increasing. And Caring is actually, I think, one of the better big companies on this stuff. So imagine how much worse it is for some of the others. And it's a little bit like, you know, I don't want to say you shouldn't be thoughtful as an individual, but it's like, okay, is my 300 pounds really the biggest deal? It sounds like maybe they should be the ones (laughs) taking this quiz, you know?
1: (laughs) You're right. I, I never thought of this. I You did better than me. My my footprint is, anyway, 531 pounds. But I was that's still on the scale either, of low. I was low. Um,
0: yeah. Well, you do you do a lot of, like, circular fashion and stuff. And, you know, I, I think probably most people's – well, not most because it's at, on an average. But, I, you know, a lot of people, I think, are pretty thoughtful about it. It's just, like, I don't think that's really where the dent is going to be made, you know?
1: Right on. Um, it's interesting. I wonder what, what um, cued this, inspired this tool. Uh, obviously, they're just trying to trying things. I, I don't know. I, I When I first heard that this was coming, I think it was a PR pitch. Uh, I put it in our channel, Sophia, who is our resident sustainability expert. I was mm-hmm. like, this is new. Do you think anybody's actually going to go through this <laughs> exercise and do this and figure out their footprint? Um, mm-hmm. And she shot it down. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. Um, because, you know, yeah. I've recently talked to many sustainable sustainable brands, brands that are focused on being sustainable. Um, and that's uh, Everlane's CEO is on the podcast this week. Um, and that's always like the state of consumer mindset for the most part is sustainability is um, a bonus that's not driving purchases. This is even within ThreadUp's own report that just came out that uh, shoppers are looking for value, um, and it makes sense with the state of the economy. Although, yes, resale provides value. Um, I also wonder what consumer behavior is driving this tool In in that, you know, everybody online on social platforms is looking to uh, self-identify uh, mm-hmm. a form of self self-expression say I'm unique in this way um, which I'm a culprit in terms of being a rent the runway shopper where um, I think they do it annually and they come out with your personal I don't think it's called a footprint report but it's about like um, the money you would have spent w- with your rentals this year and it's the top brands that you rented this year I'm always to <laughs> to self-identify yeah. I love you, Tibby. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's always it, it has a little pie chart. It breaks it down, and and yes, mm-hmm. um, the shipping, um, I don't know different costs you've saved and your footprint. Yeah. Um. So I like to grab that and and put that on my Instagram and kind of show the brands I love. Um. So they say something like this when they come out with your. Footprint is sixty-seven percent lower than the average consumer. It's very specific in to you and your quiz. Um, it's very shareable. I'm sure they're anticipating a kind of similar um, result where where folks are taking it and they're sharing it and they get some some nice promotion there.
0: Yeah. And I do think there's something to be said for education and kind of just normalizing of, you know, everybody thinking about this and not just, like I said, not just mindlessly consuming with no thought to, uh, you know, where your clothes are going to go. I, I think all that's great. And and I also think the the thing I was just saying about how, well, it's not really my responsibility, it should be these giant companies. I think that can lead to people being like, oh, well, I'll just throw trash on the ground then because it's like not really me. And I'm like, no, 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 you should you should still try to do, I think, as an individual, everything you can. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting because the brands and the resale companies that I talk to are always like, well, you know, young people are really conscious about this. They're thinking about it. They're thinking about sustainability. Um, but then also they love Shein, which is kind of, you know, <laughs> contradictory. But it, it, I, I wonder how much... A, stuff like this, that's like education and, you know, making consumers think about what they're consuming and where it's coming from and all that stuff is, it, what's the chicken and what's the egg here, you know? Um, like, is the are the resale companies being created by the demand, which they sometimes kind of characterize themselves as, as like, we're serving a customer who wants, uh, you know, to be more thoughtful and, or are they creating the customer through things like this, where they're educating people on their impact and stuff like that. And, yeah, I don't I'm not sure exactly how it all fits together where who's driving the demand and where it's coming from. But, um, yeah, maybe I'm too harsh on the tool, but I do feel a little bit when like ExxonMobil is like, you should use paper straws. I'm like, you should stop doing what you're doing first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let yes, like a scale it out. who who's making the bigger impact?
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't um, think my paper straw is going to do as much as you like not pumping carbon dioxide into there. anyway. <laughs> This is a whole other topic. Um, That's okay,
1: the report and- itself it did talk about Gen Z um, being mm-hmm. kind of anyway. We whenever somebody from our team puts the stat a stat from this up report in a sustainability story, I'm sure I've done it to you. <laughs> I we oh, kind yeah. of take it with a grain of salt, where we say, "Well, this is self-serving." Like they're going to say, mm-hmm. "Like resale is everything" because we're a resale company. They do team with a third party to do this as well. So I think that they probably see some of that. Uh, criticism, but, um, yeah, it, it does, there are some good hopeful things in here. Um, and it does show that 52% have bought secondhand in 2022, 83% of this, I guess, pool was Gen Z. I don't know if I have that exactly correct, but a larger percentage was, was Gen Z. Um, and something hopeful about when you were talking about Shein, um, there was a good stat in here that showed, uh, buying behavior over the last 10 years. Um, Oh my God, did I just delete it? (laughs) It was between 2012 and 2023. And the fact of the, or 2022. And the fact of the matter is um, fast fashion was flat um, at like eight to 9% of apparel sales. Like from 2012 to and it and it had various um, years throughout the 10 years, um, whereas secondhand had grown from 3% of apparel sales to 18%. It was still beat by off-price like TJ Maxx, um, but yeah, I mean that's hopeful in terms of fast fashion, I yeah. guess.
0: <laughs> it is, and to go back to shop talk for a second, another thing almost everybody brought up resale. They talked about it as both a sustainability tool and also as just good business sense. So I do feel like there's a lot of, you know, we've talked about this a million times, but there's a lot of excitement around the sector for both reasons. It's, it's good for business. It's a way to make some extra money off inventory that already exists. And also it is legitimately better for the environment than making new stuff all the time. So yeah, it does feel like there's, there's positive movement there. Um, Let's move on to our final topic. Uh, this week, Dolce & Gabbana announced that they would be expanding into condos and luxury hotels. Um, they're building branded luxury apartments in Miami and Marbella and working on a branded hotel in the Maldives. I think this is such an interesting idea to me. I think a lot of the big luxury fashion brands have museums, like Louis Vuitton has an art museum. Tiffany's has like a cafe they have these extra, you know, they've got hotels and apartments and stuff. Um, it, 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 I think it plays into those brands wanting to create a whole sort of lifestyle around their brand, and you know, they've the name is so powerful for a lot of them, like Dior or whatever. That you know, people will buy a, a croissant at Tiffany instead of at Starbucks. I think um, I don't have any data to back that up, but I feel like they would. Yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on on this phenomenon, Jill?
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, First of all, a little teaser for our luxury report we have coming out soon. There will be a – anyway, we're doing some things with luxury. But we just had a focus group. And I had – like we don't typically kind of canoodle with the folks from the hospitality division or category. And we had Thomas uh, Carreras. He's the GM from Four Seasons in New York. He was talking about um, basically – well, in terms of luxury brands coming into existing hotels, we we saw that trend for a long time with pop-ups. Different um, luxury brands come in and do experiences, and if they don't own the hotel in itself or that's not their hotel, they're still kind of getting, I guess, they pre- making up their presence known um, at these places that have a an affluent clientele, um, which is interesting either way mm-hmm. um he was calling that element of this whole phenomenon um an opportunity to better serve the client like and it was it's not a making a money make money making play for the hotel it's like our client loves dior <laughs> of course we're going yeah. to get have dior at their fingertips and we've seen this vivrel um luxury accessories handbag company teaming with four seasons literally mm-hmm. the residents can just pick up a bag and leave so anyway there's this whole kind of separate phenomenon happening where brand um luxury brands are moving into existing hotels but in terms of opening their own definitely an opportunity to align with that lifestyle everybody wants to be a lifestyle brand uh luxury brands are launching beauty lines um gucci Mm -hmm. and versace are launching home decor um So yes, just to get in good, offer a more intimate experience with the brand, be able to communicate the story, the brand story in full beyond what they can Mm -hmm. do in a store even, um, and communicate what it stands for. Um, There are some really sexy brand hotels out there. Um, And yeah, I'm with you. I'm seeing it more.
0: Yeah, and uh, was it was it the Four Seasons a couple of years ago that had a Rent the Runway partnership where it's like you could pick your outfit and it would just be in your room, like in the closet in your room when you got there? I thought that was such a cool integration. But um, okay. but yeah, you're right. There's uh, there when I was at Shop Talk, I'm I'm, remember, I'm forgetting the brand that I talked to, but somebody was telling me that they look to hotels as uh, inspiration for being like really good at brand building and customer experience and that stuff. And if you think about going to a really nice hotel, um, you know, it's all like so high touch and they've got stuff waiting for you. It's, you know, I think especially a higher end brand would love for their store to feel like a hotel and, and you know, a fancy hotel in some ways where it's, you've got someone waiting for you, they welcome you in and all that stuff. So um, it, I think a lot of those brands are already taking inspiration from hotels. Um you know, the expensive ones anyway, uh, that it makes sense to also just open your own hotel. And uh, I think you're also right. You know, it's interesting about having Dior, like a Dior pop-up in the hotel maybe doesn't make them a ton of extra money. But if I went into a hotel and there was a Dior pop-up in the hotel, I definitely would be like, oh, this is a fancy hotel. <laughs> it would, it would, you know, it would increase my estimation of the place I was in.
1: For sure. It's true. And I wonder, you got to wonder to what extent... Um, it, it it's not just a beautiful ho- hotel. I think that fashion fans, fashion is a huge, huge industry. I think that people are just flocking from all areas to go to, um, whatever it is. There's Louis Vuitton, there's Chanel, there's Dior. These hotels, we see that we saw that with like the Gucci restaurant in Beverly Hills. Like, fashion fashion fans are there. I went to a hotel which was not schmancy. I didn't even know Lanvin had toiletries, but I was like. Ooh, and I'm taking a photo of it, and and I'm a fashion. And just to kind of say, like, the fashion element. It was during Fashion Week. I thought that that was so cool. Um, so I just think that, yeah, fashion fans are going to flock. Um, it's an opportunity for brands to show who they are. Christian Louboutin just opened one in Portugal, and there are Mm -hmm. kind of pops of red to reflect the red soles. Um, and it's done Mm -hmm. very tastefully. It's just 13 rooms. A lot of these are very intimate. And I also see we're going to see more of them opening in Dubai and these other um, these other huge luxury capitals. Uh, we talked in our luxury focus group about the opportunity and like Saudi Arabia is opening up. Like, I don't know, like what are the, the emerging opportunities for brands? And I'm sure these aren't in the, the usual suspect locations. Like, I don't know. what's usual Milan. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I think we should wrap up. But one final thought is just to have slightly critical view. I, I do think sometimes when I see a brand that's not really known for one thing, like getting into that thing, I'm a little bit like, you know, a Dolce & Gabbana hotel sounds very fancy, but I'm like, but is it better than a Four Seasons hotel? Because Four Seasons they, they know how to do hotels. And is it just like, is it going to be kind of subpar, but because it's got the DNG name on it that it's like, I don't know. I, I think there's definitely a danger of that sometimes where it's kind of like, you know, it's like when you, uh, you go to an event like shop talk or something and they give you like a phone charger, like with the, uh, the event's like logo on it, it's like, oh, that's fun, but it's probably not as good as just the Apple phone charger. You know, it's like kind (laughs) of a worse version just with the name slapped on it. So um, anyway, I could see it going that direction too. Good Um, point. But let's, uh, let's wrap it up there. Um, great conversation as always, Jill. I love doing this with you. Um, okay. For those of you listening, please, if you don't mind, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, um, wherever you're listening to this. That helps us out a lot. And uh, you should also subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because we do Weekend Review episodes every Friday. And every Wednesday, Jill or I will interview some cool, interesting industry person. Jill, you mentioned Everlane. Was that last week's or is it this week's?
1: Yeah, that one just went live this week. So next week is uh, Liz Eswine and Quincy Moore. It's a twofer. um, And they are behind the brand New York or Nowhere, which is really timely. Oh, yeah. I know that. That brand is sweeping the nation and uh, really the new iHeart New York logo is getting some backlash. So oh, yeah, we do talk about the high I heart New York logo. But at the time when we recorded it, the newbie hadn't come out yet, um, unfortunately, <laughs> but it's still great.
0: Okay, that's, not, that's such good timing for them. I, I heard about the new iHeart New York logo and I hadn't seen it. And I was like, why would everybody be mad? And I saw it and I was like, oh, I hate this so much. <laughs> I know. Um, it's, it's like makes, I, I don't made know
1: it why. In, in design. I, <laughs> I don't know anything about design.
0: <laughs> it's very graphic design is my passion. But yeah, it's it, I, I didn't like it. Anyway, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Jill, for being here. And for those of you listening, thank you for joining us.